while the kids are being dismissed, and we got a lot of kids today, so uh, while parents are headed to the back, let me just reiterate what Jared said. Next Sunday, we will be here, and I know a lot of you are traveling over this next week, so we want to go ahead today and wish you a Merry Christmas. And uh, for those of you who will worship with us on Christmas Eve, we will be here, 60-minute or less service. I'm excited about it. We're going to have some traditional Christmas songs, traditional Christmas readings, some devotions from some people that you don't normally hear from, and it's going to be a good family-style service, so we welcome you to come and worship with us next Sunday. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're in an Advent series entitled, Wonder Again. Not wander again, but wonder again. And in John chapter 1, today we look at the incarnation. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at prediction. Then last week we looked at anticipation. And today we look at the incarnation in one verse. John 1 verse 14. John the Beloved writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. When you think about Christmas, what are some of the things that come to your mind when I just say the word Christmas? For most of us, it's things like trees and lights, for it's food and family, presents, gifts, Santa, magic, the wonder of the season. But what is Christmas really like? Like those are the things that we think of, but what's it really like? Because it's really like malls and hectic shopping and trying to find the perfect gift, even though you haven't seen that family member and don't know quite how much weight they've lost or gained. Just being honest, Christmas is, what's it really like? It's like checking your bank account more than you ever check it in any other time of the year because you're broke. And you're hoping that you get enough money in return as gifts that you can actually pay off the stuff that you had to buy everyone. Am I far from the truth? It's hectic. It's busy. There's all these other obligations of family and friends. And yes, they're great and the food is great, but it is a busy, oftentimes stressful time of the year. And in the midst of everything I just named, I never mentioned Jesus. And I did it purposefully because some of you didn't even miss him. And it's true for what we think of when it comes to Christmas. We miss Jesus. And while it sounds so simple, I think it's profound. R.C. Sproul passed away this last week. Some of you have no idea who he is. He is, in my opinion, arguably one of the greatest theologians of our day, if not the greatest theologian of our modern era. Not because he was so brilliant, but because he was brilliant and at the same time had a way of making things simple yet profound. And R.C. was asked on many occasions, what do you think the greatest problem of the church is? And over his ministry during the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and up until the last, he ministered all the way to 78, ministered up until the time of his death, 
um, he answered that question, as far as I know, the same way. He very simply said, the problem with the church today is that we do not know God. And I think he's right. Those are stark condemning words. Now, I think it's natural for us to say, really, we don't know God in this day and time? We have more commentaries and resources and churches on every corner and pastors who've gone to seminary than any other time in all of human history. How could we not know God? I think there's a couple different reasons. I think the frenetic pace of our life that a lot of times we'll blame on technology fuels this, this always looking for something else within the modern era. Because whenever we find the whatever else it is, we're not satisfied and we look for more. Which that ultimately isn't technology or the modern era. That's just the human heart and pride that for ever since humanity has been here, we've looked outside of ourselves or outside of God. We've looked to ourselves in order to find satisfaction. So it's pride. But I think the second part, and I'm talking about the church doesn't know God. I'm not talking about outsiders. I mean, the church I think the second reason why the church doesn't know God is because we don't believe that God is enough. Honestly, we don't believe that the Bible is enough and we don't believe that the Holy Spirit is enough. And so we, as the church, buy into what many would call the spirit of the age and we think that we have to make God more exciting as if God needed to be more than he already is. We act as if we need to entertain people. We act as if we need to self-help them to the point that many of us don't really know what the gospel is anymore. I'll just say it this way. Here's my example. If people leave the church during the Christmas season talking more about the Christmas gimmick that was used to entertain them more than they talk about Jesus and the wonder of the Savior, then something is terribly wrong. Today, I want to make an attempt, at least for a few moments, to counteract this cultural milieu that I've described to you today and to instead paint a picture of the incarnation and to give us an opportunity to, to examine, once again, the wonder of Jesus. Now, when I say the incarnation, you say, you're in John 1. Why are you talking about doctrine? Can't we get to some baby and some hay? Like, it's Christmas, and we will next week. I promise we will. We're going to read all those passages. But for today, I want to look at something even deeper than the baby and the hate. Because there's so much more to the incarnation. Um, not because the hay in the manger and the no room in the inn aren't important. And they're most certainly part of Jesus' humble beginnings and have their place in the story. But today, I want to focus on our hearts on what I'm calling the great Christmas miracle. And I want to ask you, if you would, this next week, that you would ponder these thoughts in order that you'd be able to prepare your heart next weekend to celebrate Jesus and his birth. Okay? So the big idea for today is this. Christmas is painfully glorious. Christmas is painfully glorious. The beloved disciple John writes in chapter 1, of Jesus' humble beginnings on earth. But, but instead of going to Nazareth, like a lot of the other gospel narratives do, uh, John steps outside of time and he introduces Jesus as God who has always been. It's hugely important. He begins with the words, and the word, which in the Greek is that term logos, 
um, and has such a depth of meaning. Jehovah's Witnesses get it wrong. A lot of different people uh, get it wrong, mainly because their lack of understanding of the Greek or their lack of going back to Old Testament sightings in which the Logos, the word, was mentioned. This word in the Old Testament is God's powerful expression of, of salvation, of creation, of self-revelation. And John uses it to, to personify God, the word. It makes it suitable for John to apply as a title to God's self-disclosure. God coming in the flesh in the person of his son, Jesus. In verse 1, John introduces the Logos with the clause, uh, in the beginning. So we pick up in verse 14, and we see, and the word. Well, we have to go back to verse 1 to get the context, which was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What is John saying? Instantly, his Hebrew readers would have pulled back to Genesis 1. Instantly, they would have been reminded of the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is making this firm case to say that not only was Jesus with God in the beginning, taking part in creating, but that Jesus is God. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. This is hugely important in understanding the Christmas story because we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to understand where he came from. Not just that he showed up as a little baby in the manger. No, you're missing nine-tenths of the story if that's how you think of Jesus. The New Testament church was quick to confess Jesus not only as Messiah but as God. Let those words sink in. Jesus was not only Messiah, he was God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says it this way. It's one of my favorite passages that the, the New Testament church was quick to declare, yes, he is Messiah, he is Savior, but he is also God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Means he's the senior pastor. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Couldn't be any clearer. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The church was quick to declare Jesus as both Messiah and as God. But uh, even Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 28, when he sees Jesus' hands and his feet, he declares, my Lord and my God. We see that over and over again. But John doesn't stop here. He goes on to share what must be the most shocking words to penetrate and break into all of human history. And some of us have become so familiar with the Christmas story that we're no longer shocked by these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The shock and awe of that statement. That the word, God, would become flesh it should leave us dumbfounded, speechless. It should leave us completely undone. Now, in contrast, the story of Christmas 
While it should leave us undone, it wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't a last-ditch effort to save humanity. I want you to get the big picture of the greatness of Jesus' incarnation. Instead, it was a plan that began at the moment of creation. I mean, that's as far as we can track it back. When God spoke the world into being and his mere words caused light to be, in that moment, Jesus' future incarnation became a reality. In the moment of Genesis 1, think about this, in which God said, let there be light, in that moment, the light of the revelation of himself, of God, through the person and work of Jesus, was put into motion. You say, why? Because God knew humanity. And what I'm saying to you is that God knew that in creating the world and humanity that he was choosing to kill his only son. Think about that initiating a plan that would cause him to give up his only son for torture, for crucifixion, and for death. Wrap your mind around that. I can't. Wouldn't give up one of my sons. That means Christmas is a tragedy and a travesty of untold proportions. Think about that. A tragedy, what is that? It's an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress such as a serious accident or crime or or natural catastrophe. There has been no greater tragedy than Jesus' incarnation because there has never been a person so gloriously brought low, so innocently made to suffer, so wrongfully killed. It's a tragedy. Jesus' incarnation is a travesty That means a false, absurd, or or distorted representation of something. It's absurd. Jesus born in a manger, it only scratches the surface of the absurdity of the idea of God with us. The immortal, invisible, omnipotent God being reduced to mere dirt. To humanity formed From the dust of the earth. God, the invisible, infinite, immortal, eternal, choosing to become visible, finite, mortal, temporary. It's absurd. The gospel is always painfully glorious. If you only hear of the glory and not death, When you hear the gospel, then you haven't heard the gospel. If you hear Joel Olstein's message of the gospel, your best life now, haven't heard the gospel. Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. Jesus was confronted frequently with a question, how is it possible to receive God as Savior, but not as Lord? American church is hung up with this, this mentality. How can we receive... And it started, I mean, it's been going on for all of time, but in the 60s we battled it, and we battle it again today, subconsciously. We don't even realize we're battling it because we think that Jesus has shown up in order to, to fix us. We think it's all about us. And so we want a Savior who doesn't want us to die to ourselves. We want him to save us from our sins. We don't want to bow to him as King and Lord. Happened all throughout history. Matthew 19, the rich young man, he comes to Jesus. I'm not gonna turn there, just listen. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? See what he's doing there? Jesus' response, if you would be perfect, go sell 
sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Scripture says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus knew that the rich young man was looking for salvation. He was looking for eternal life, but he wasn't looking for lordship. He wasn't willing to die. The gospel is always painfully glorious. It's free, and at the same time, it costs us everything. It involves a daily dying to ourselves and a living to Christ. For us, as we consider Jesus' incarnation, as we consider what it means to worship him, Christmas should be, to us, it should be a slap in the face. Because we're painfully and awkwardly confronted with our desperate, sinful, I don't know how else to say it, rotting hearts. And we experience what I would describe as healthy shame when we come to realize that we aren't enough. You aren't enough. You'll never be enough. We don't have what it takes to please God. We can't do a good deed that will gain us eternal life. As a rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do? The answer Jesus gives him is painful. He says, sell all that you have. In other words, die to yourself and all that you believe gives you significance. And find your greatest satisfaction, your greatest contentment, find your greatest happiness in me. The gospel is always painfully glorious news. In John chapter 1 uh, and John chapter 20, verse 31, he gave the theme for the whole book. And he says his purpose in writing, John wrote, in order that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through believing we may have life in his name. That was the essence of Jesus' ministry. He came in order to give us life. Life more abundant. How does Jesus come? How does Jesus coming to earth give us life today? How does it give us life today? Because I think we tend to think of Jesus' birth as kind of a one and done Bethlehem kind of routine, right? We have our nativity sets out and we, we have them out in order to remember and we kind of retell the story to our children. We even have live nativities that we might go and that we would visit. And while those are good, The incarnation is meant for so much more than just remembering. Jesus' incarnation is so much more than than how we think of it. We think of it as a one-time experience with some future implications. That's how we think of the incarnation. He came, and I'm glad he came because one day I'm going to have eternal life with him. It's kind of future implication. Instead, Jesus' incarnation is a present reality that completely changes the way in which we relate to and experience life with God. Jesus' incarnation is a present reality. We have the opportunity to have true life today, true peace today. John says in in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The Greek word is best translated. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. Now, that didn't really help us. Okay, God set up a tent among us. What does that mean? So let me help you try to understand with a very crude illustration. When Cousin Eddie showed up in the family RV in front of the Griswold home, you with me? 
National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Everyone knew that Christmas was going to be forever changed. (laughs) Do you remember Clark's quote when Eddie said, Clark, are you surprised? And Clark said, I couldn't be more surprised. If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I couldn't be more surprised than I am right now. In no way am I relating Cousin Eddie to Jesus or anything in terms of the nativity. But now that I've got your attention, please understand that God has shown up in the person of Jesus, and that impacts our everyday life in the most, in, in the most deeply meaningful way possible. God in the flesh. And John goes on to explain how his presence impacts us. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? How has he impacted us? How does he give us life? We have seen his glory. Where else do we see the glory of God? I mean, we think about the glory of God in the Old Testament. There's a couple of passages that come to mind. Most of us would go to Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses would say, show me your glory. God says, you die but I'm gonna put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm gonna put my hand over you. I'm gonna pass by, allow you to see my goodness. My goodness is gonna pass before you. And so we see that God's glory is his goodness from the Father. And he goes on and he says that his, his goodness is full of grace and truth. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that? That, that Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Surely the glory of God is most and best expressed in the person of Jesus. But if you look at that in the Greek, yes, Jesus is grace and he is truth, most certainly. But the better rendering of that would be that his Son truly full of grace. Not two separate things, grace and truth, but truly full of grace. And when we see that, when we hear this, instantly we think, how is the birth of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, it's fully, it's full of grace, but how is it glorious? Glory of the Son, full of grace and truth. How is Jesus' birth glorious? It's the furthest thing from it. It's painful. There's absolutely nothing glorious about it. A manger, a feeding trough, the first smells to touch his nostrils were that of a barnyard. And if you grew up around a farm, I mean, if you didn't grow up around a farm, if you've, never, if you've never shoveled chicken manure, then you don't know. If you've never shoveled horse manure, then you really don't know. It's worse than chicken manure. But when you get around a feeding trough, you might think, oh, they made that into a cute... No. If you've ever watched animals around a feeding trough, it doesn't take long for what to happen, for the manure to show up. And that's what Jesus was born into the cold hello of humanity. Isaiah 53 would describe not only his birth, but his whole life, every day experience was suffering. Isaiah 53 describes it in verses two through five. Listen, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Every movie that's ever been made of Jesus, I believe, made him look uh, too fondly, too attractive, just looked too good. There was nothing about him that would cause us to say, man, maybe he's Messiah. He was despised and rejected by me and a man of sorrows, 
man of sorrows. Think about that this Christmas season. As you prepare your heart for worship for this Christmas season, consider the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Even the prediction of his coming points to a life that seems far from glorious. So you say, Brad, what are you doing? You're depressing us. What are you doing? How could Jesus' life be glorious? How could John say, we have seen his glory? Because everything about the incarnation, listen to this, everything about the incarnation, as painful as it was for Jesus, is glorious for us. Revel in that. Find gratitude in that. He was humbled and brought low so that we might be elevated as sons and daughters of God. He was despised and rejected so that we might be accepted and forgiven. He was acquainted with grief so that we might know the God who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He was the selfless servant so that we might no longer live for ourselves. The glory of the manger is that Jesus came to suffer in our place. He came in the fullest expression of God's goodness to us by extending the fullness of grace to all who would receive it. The glory of the incarnation is the pain that Jesus took on every day of his life. His sadness becomes our joy. His grief, our hope. Do you see the tension of Christmas? Without fully understanding the tragedy and sadness of Jesus' life, we can't fully appreciate the wonder of his love for us. Let me say that again. Without fully understanding the tragedy and sadness of Jesus' life, we can't fully appreciate the wonder of his love for us. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 7.3. He said, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You realize if you have sadness in your life, if you have trauma, and you don't go back and actually work through that sadness, that you don't actually cry, that you don't actually embrace the sadness, that the wound will never heal. See, sadness makes the heart glad. Why? Because sadness points us to loss. It points us to an appreciation. It points us to a depth of feeling that something significant has been taken from us. Listen, I don't know what, what the Christians mean when they say, man, at my, at my funeral, don't cry for me. Like, I'm in heaven with Jesus and y'all just come have a big celebration. I hope people are boohooing at my funeral. You want to know Why? Because I hope I made a significant impact enough in some people's lives that I missed. Like, I hope there's a true sadness. Not a sadness of depression, right? 
but a sadness of saying, hey, he's with Jesus, so we celebrate, but he's missed. We have to embrace sadness in our lives in order to really see the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus. I think my favorite Christmas carol or hymn, and I'm accused of listening to them as soon as Halloween is over. I will not respond as to whether that is true or not. My favorite, you may be surprised, is In the Bleak Midwinter. It's written in the 1800s by an Italian gal in England. She was never married. She turned down two suitors, two guys who they weren't close enough to her in doctrine. She lived artist, an artist's life, follower of Jesus, was never married. In the Bleak Midwinter was a poem. It was, it was put... The, the music was placed to it in 1906, years after she had died, over 10 years after she died. This poem, I love it because you feel the tension of Christmas remind, reminds us that it's painfully glorious in the bleak midwinter. Frosty wind may moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place suffice. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk and manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before the ox and ass and camel, which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved, worshiped with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give him my heart. How do we give Jesus our heart at Christmas? How do we give him our heart during the season? Do we, do we go to Jesus like the rich young man and ask what good deeds we can do in order that we can have life? Do we, do we attempt to stack up enough merry cheer and holiday brightness toward others so that we can feel better about our own lonely condition? Do we just white knuckle it? Do we put a smile on our faces and say, I'm going to try really hard to worship Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to give more to the poor. So we try to do all those things. Do we give everything away as Jesus commanded the rich young man? The answer to all this is no. It's not how we give Jesus our heart. Because even if we were able to accomplish giving away all that we had, it would result in pride. We'd be so full of ourselves that we'd hold others in content who hadn't done as much as we had, right? Instead of living for ourselves and giving Jesus our hearts, we look away from ourselves. We gaze on the wonder of the one who has already given everything away. You see that? That's what the incarnation is. We gaze in wonder at the one who became poor, so that this Christmas season, we might become rich. His name is Jesus. And his Christmas is painfully 
glorious. I pray that we might know him fresh and anew this Christmas. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, this is a time that Jesus commanded us to remember all of his life, all of his suffering, his death, and his glorious resurrection. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, hear the gospel today. Jesus is a man who is God. He lived a perfect life, sinless life. He died in the place of all who would turn from their sins and turn to him and worship him as Lord and as King of their lives. Here today, if you don't know him, God loves you. That's the point of Christmas. He came that you would have life and that you would have it abundantly. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, know that he loves you desperately. He sent his son for you. It's absurd. It's the most absurd kind of love. We can't even wrap our minds around it. And he offers forgiveness. He offers eternal life today for all who ask. So if you don't know him today, just simply say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I want eternal life. Save me. And he'll do it. He'll do it today. He promises. He'll be a son and a daughter of God. I'm going to invite the band. I'm going to invite them to come forward ahead of us to take communion. As they prepare to lead us in song. And as they come forward, please hear these words. God, help us prepare not just our homes, but our hearts for Christmas. This season is not about what the world wants, but what we all need. Jesus, you are God's eternal grace to us. Jesus, you alone are our salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, as we bow our heads low, God, we do so only because you have sent your son to bow low, far lower than we could ever bow. Jesus has humbled himself. And Jesus, we just, we say thank you. Minds can't imagine the depths of your love the race that you took blazing across heaven in order to come into our world, in order to become dirt, in order to save us from our rotting hearts, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our irrational thinking, to save us from our sins. Jesus, may we this Christmas season, see you in a whole new light. May it be said of us as the church, as we reflect on this painfully glorious season, may it be said that we know you just a little bit better, not because of our work, but because of the faith that you give us, because of the grace that's been extended to us through your cross and through your glorious resurrection, may we begin celebrating even now the life that we have, the peace that we have, the joy that we have. God with us. May we worship. His table is open. Come and remember. Amen.